This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. It is time for another Trumpet Hour. It is good to have you with us. I'm Joel Hilliker. Britain has a new prime minister. Liz Truss has taken over for Boris Johnson. On Monday, the ruling Conservative Party chose her as its leader. And yesterday, Queen Elizabeth II formally asked her to form a new government. What might a trust government look like? Britain is facing a lot of serious problems, an energy crisis heading into winter, soaring prices, labor unrest, a broken health care system, tense relations with Europe. We'll talk with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about what we know of Liz Truss and what we might expect from her in the time ahead. In our second segment, we'll focus more on an aspect of this energy crisis, which is affecting not only Britain, but all of Europe. Europe has been trying to boycott Russian energy as retaliation for its war in Ukraine. But reports are that China is buying Russian energy, Russian liquefied natural gas, and then reselling it to Europe. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about this. In our third segment, we'll head over to Jerusalem where this past weekend the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology just opened its doors to the public. We'll have a conversation with our Trumpet Hour Jerusalem correspondent, Brent Noctigal, about the archaeological excavation the Institute was involved in this past summer, the opening of its new home, how the grand opening went, including the keynote address from our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, and what its next steps are. And we'll finish the program today with a couple of simple rules that help ensure you're giving your body the right fuel. Let's start now by talking about Britain's new prime minister. To learn more about her, we have via Skype from our office in England, Richard Palmer. Hello. Good afternoon. So before we talk about Liz Truss, let's talk briefly about her predecessor. How do Britain's look back on Boris Johnson's legacy and how do how do you view Boris Johnson's time in office ah, how do Britons look back on Boris Johnson's legacy you could it's a bit like asking how to how do Americans look back on Donald Trump I guess you'd get a very different answer depending on uh, who you asked sure I think um, you know for me I think for many people brexit will stand out as one of the most important things you know, he got brexit done and he he did get Britain out of the EU. He there, you know, there are still loose ends to tie up. There's still a bit of messiness, but ultimately he got us out of something that wouldn't be semi-detached EU membership or kind of Brexit in name only. Uh, but 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 got Brexit done, and I think that's something that's of incredible long-term importance. It's of something that uh, you, we focused very much on because it was prophesied. And so, you know, is there more, more long-term importance than, than fulfilled Bible prophecy? So it, the Bible has very, talks about a very different fate for Europe and for Britain. And so because of this, Herbert W. Armstrong, right from the very moment Britain entered the EU, said that they would leave. And I think Boris Johnson's name will go down in history forever tied to that. So then you've also got covid you know, which is also something I think that's got a massive legacy. This is the biggest assault in Britain since, I don't know, Edward the, Edward the Unready, maybe, or, or Ethelred the Unready, or William the Conqueror. You know, it, it, it's a, 
once in a thousand year assault on British liberties that is also going to have long term consequences. And you're seeing some of these things that would be unthinkable, like lockdowns and putting people under house arrest, a nation under house arrest, becoming more and more thinkable now for other things beyond uh, beyond just um, health. Or you, now it's like, well, do we need a Brexit for the climate? Do we need a Brexit? I mean, not a Brexit, a lockdown for the climate or a lockdown for fuel shortages. Mm. So at the same time, you know, he's also going to probably go down as somebody who. Uh, he maybe didn't necessarily agree with all of the lockdowns, but lacked the courage and his convictions to really stand up in it and was at the helm when you had the greatest assault on British liberties in a thousand years. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately went down because he didn't stick to the own rules that he created. I think that's some of that is also epoch making uh, and seems like that would forever be attached to him, too. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent summary. So it's been about two months since he announced that he would step down. Uh, fairly efficient process for the Conservative Party to choose a new leader. I think they uh, kind of uh, held that up as uh, a point of pride that they were going to make this uh, a quick turnaround. How did they end up with Liz Truss? Yeah, it's almost like a video game. Well, not a video game, um, a TV show game. Uh, that's what it reminded me of, a game show where you get, uh, at first there were about a dozen different candidates and then we're in this rapid elimination. You know, somebody gets, somebody new gets voted off each day yeah. where they just had among members of the Conservative Party sitting in Parliament. So I, I guess about 350 or so people, they would go in and vote and whoever they got the least votes would be eliminated. Or as that kind as that process wore on, then it would be, okay, there'd be a, a limit. You've got to get 50 votes or 70 votes, and anybody who fell short of that would be eliminated. So it leads to this kind of process of uh, a lot of Conservative Party members are, are motivated by which person do I dislike the most? Mm -hmm. uh, and so how can I get them eliminated? Uh, there's also a lot of horse trading. You know, we want somebody from our wing of the party to make it through to the final round. If we're separate, we don't have a chance of doing that. Can we find a way to get together? If I promise you this job, will you throw your supporters behind me? Uh, and in general, the Conservative Party is much to the left, the Parliamentary Party, much to the left of the, of the base membership. I think very mm. similar to the Republican Party, where you, know, you constantly have Republicans being disappointed by the votes and the decisions of congressmen and senators. Uh, so when they're offering the so that it goes through this process and then the rank and file conservative party members choose between the final two so when the parliamentary leaders are, are working on who are they going to narrow down they're also trying to give the final two the options that they're happy with and make sure that none of the people that are too right wing for them make it into the final two and then in general the conservative party membership can be relied upon to be vote to vote for whoever's most right wing of the two options presented them and that's pretty much what happened with, uh, I mean, the poll. In some way, it's it's kind of a funny thing. We have a new prime minister, and somehow it doesn't feel like big news because we knew that there would be this new prime minister in place today, going back several months. Like it, it's the poll lead has been so massive. It's you know, it's going to be Liz Truss. We've always known it's going to be Liz Truss, and we make wake up this morning like, yeah, it's Liz Truss. Mm -hmm. So. She is. She represents uh, an establishment conservative party politician who is 
well enough liked or she's uh, palatable enough to a large enough part of the uh, the conservative party sitting in parliament she's more to the right than the the one that she won against what all do we know about her what does she represent yeah it's a good question uh she she was a pro-EU. She voted to remain in the EU. But once Britain left the EU, she has worked very hard to be on the kind of hard Eurosceptic wing of the party. Whether she had a true Damascian con- uh, conversion or whether she concluded that in the current climate of the Conservative Party, it's a prudent political move to be very pro-Brexit, I don't know. Uh, but for whatever reason, she decided we're leaving the EU, we're going to make a complete break of it. It has been said that sh- that the, e- the response from the EU and people, um, the, the EU negotiators with the, with the UK, once Boris Johnson left, was to say, well, we want anybody but Liz Truss. Uh, so uh, that's, a, that's a mark in her favor in my book. Uh, <laughs> so she's, she is, but the, you know, she's marketed herself as being hard Brexit. She was foreign secretary. She worked hard to create trade deals with places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Cap- India, capitalizing on some of those links. Not all of those trade deals have necessarily panned out yet. Uh, she consciously worked to imitate photo shoots that Margaret Thatcher did, trying to present the same kind of strong woman image. Uh, we'll get to see now. You're know, projecting a strong woman image is one thing. Actually, emulating Margaret Thatcher is, is more difficult. We'll have to see what she does there. And then um, she also really went to loggerheads with the EU about this question of Northern Ireland. And she was not at all afraid of standing up to the EU on this. A lot of people in Britain on the towards the left were kind of or, or especially those that are pro-EU were kind of horrified by this and characterizing it as ripping up international treaties and breaking international law. I mean, really, she's just willing to stand up to the EU and kind of play hardball. Uh, so uh, that, I think, is what people most know about her. She's the foreign secretary. So foreign affairs are what we know the most. Uh, some of those other things are maybe less known, but I think we've gotten a bit of a glimpse of that over the the election, and then especially with her cabinet appointments today. Okay, well, tell us uh, tell us about her cabinet appointments. So I think one of the most significant in terms of looking at what uh, who she's going to uh, wh- which way she's going to go is putting in Suella Braverman as the Home Secretary. So in the cabinet. Home Secretary, Foreign Minister, Chancellor of the Exchequer. These are the three most important jobs. Uh, Home Secretary is policing uh, and kind of internal law and order and UK borders. Foreign Secretary is pretty self-explanatory. Chancellor is taxes and spending. So for the Foreign Secretary, I mean, sorry, for the Home Secretary, she's got in Suella Braverman, who previously was the Attorney General. And she also, her thing that she was most known for was trying to get Britain out from under the European Court of Human Rights. She was trying to um, to make sure that this was not used as a means to continue Europe's hold over the UK. So right in line with what we've known from Liz Truss and as you know, head of policing and things like that, she'll probably continue doing that. She was also she ran for, for leader. Uh, she also kind of became known a bit for her war on woke. Mm. that she stood up quite forcefully to some efforts within the uh, uh, civil service to try and bring in more woke things and to uh, make things more difficult for women in the name of transgender rights, all of this kind of thing. Uh, So this could be pretty significant, putting her in in charge of the police force where we've seen the British police force 
you know, ignore actual crimes and go over thought crimes and hate crimes that have occurred on Twitter. Right. So, you know, if she if, if that is Teresa, if, if she's been put in charge of that uh, and that's the intent of the prime, the new prime minister, Liz Truss, in putting her there. Well, that could be a very good sign. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I think Pretty Patel, the previous Home Secretary, also talked a very good talk, but we saw very little action from her. Uh, and then but then some of the other cabinet appointments uh, they've got. Uh, I mean, she's got some um, you know, Kwasi Kwateng. He's the he was the business secretary. He's in charge of the chancellor. He is very much kind of small government, small taxes. Her chief advisor, actually, who's been a, a strong advisor even throughout the whole campaign uh, and not necessarily a cabinet position. He is he, he used to be uh, well, his name is Matthew Sinclair. He used to be the executive of the Taxpayers Alliance which is a pre uh, pressure group about lowering taxes everywhere. So a lot of people that she's put in power have been small government, small small spending. So there's a lot of pos positive signs. At the same time, you, know, you, you mentioned even on the intro, you've got Jeremiah coming on later talking about this energy crisis. Uh, one of the first things that she's done is announced a price cap on energy. Mm. So the, the energy is going to be able to, basically it will get a little bit higher than it is right now not the catastrophic levels that we've been forecasting. You know, I've been talking about 500 pounds a month, which is what they've been saying it could be come January. That's not going to happen anymore. But she's funding that through borrowing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, as a British citizen and taxpayer, I'm kind of very grateful to not be having to pay 500 pounds a month for energy. But this is a very, you know, this is the easy out. This is uh, putting the sticker plaster on the problem. And sometimes maybe you do need a sticker plaster so that you can get the time you need to address the root causes. But it, it, it seems like she might just take the easy way out. Oh, yeah, we've got an economic crisis coming. We've got massive energy problems. Instead of getting to the heart of why is energy so expensive, let's just borrow some money, bail everybody out. Mm hmm. Right. And those types of uh, government interventions tend to come with uh, side effects that outweigh the problems that they're intended to address so often. Uh, you mentioned the energy crisis, obviously a major problem that Liz Truss is going to be expected to address. Any others that stand out to you as being kind of high on her to do list? Well, I do think this kind of cost of living crisis, as it gets called over here, is going to be super dominant. Uh, that's throughout all the camp. That's what people have been most focused on. Energy is a big part of it. Interest rates are going up, which means mortgage payments will be going up. Rents are shooting up. Fuel prices are, st are still up. Food prices are up. There's forecast of inflation at 20% come next year. This then feeds into a lot of strikes because company you know, workers want to, if, if inflation's 10%, workers want a 10% pay rise at least. And businesses in this economic climate are reluctant to give them that. So then you've got rolling strike actions. And, and so this is the plate that this is what overwhelmingly she's going to have to deal with. And that's not that's not easy to deal with. I think Brexit, the kind of the continuing complications from Brexit and the Northern Ireland border, that will be fairly high on her to-do list. I think the um, what is going on with with costs of living has kind of pushed that out of the public thinking for a fair bit. Ukraine will be another one. I think Boris Johnson, one of the most popular things that he did was his very strong support for Ukraine. I think there'll be a lot of people looking for Liz Truss to continue that policy and to demonstrate that she can be as good a friend of Ukraine as Boris Johnson was, so she'll probably probably look at that too. 
so I think for her, those are those, and just even you know, making the books balance and, and sorting out, well, how do we reckon rising cost of living with a high debt, all of those kind of things. The uh, trumpet issue, I guess it was two issues ago now, uh, Gerald Flurry wrote about the alignment between uh, political crisis in America, in Britain, and in uh, in Israel, these three major nations of of end time Israel, uh, all three of them in the middle of uh, some serious political turmoil. Uh, but he, what he has been saying is that at some point, uh, Donald Trump is going to return in the United States and there's going to be some kind of a, a resurgence here. And he has speculated that there may be a similar resurgence that occurs in Britain and Israel as well. Looking at, uh, we're obviously very early on with a, a Liz Truss government, but uh, as you mentioned, her cabinet picks, there have to be conservatives that are looking at this and saying, well, maybe there's some cause for optimism here. Um, any Any thoughts, any projections, any speculation on what may occur in light of this larger prophetic picture that we're looking at. Yeah, it does seem like there's two different directions here uh, with that larger prophetic perspective, that we'll have this resurgence and that we're seeing it begin with Liz Truss and that she's genuinely going to follow through on a lot of these ideas, that she will um, turn things around to a a certain extent within, within the UK complete finally this whole finished process of of brexit and we'll see this as a as a kind of a partner in the resurgence and the other way is that we just keep crashing Mm -hmm. and i do think a lot of people after a lot of hope and optimism for theresa may and a lot of hope and optimism for boris johnson don't have a lot of hope and optimism left uh now for our new prime minister so yeah you could also see well we've still maybe we've still got to wait maybe potentially she'll crash and burn so significantly that uh, we have another new leader or something like that to go with the resurgence. Boris Johnson, in his farewell speech, he even kind of hinted at a comeback. Uh, I don't know whether he would be the one to bring some kind of a, a resurgence, maybe if he learned from his mistakes and his his time in office. But uh, if we, so if we're going to have a resurgence, maybe she'll be part of it. Uh, maybe she will continue to or maybe she'll just continue the trend of failing what i do think though in a lot of ways the crises that we're in i think it shows the emphasis on america what we've written and there's in biblical prophecy it does over overwhelmingly focus on america and it includes other countries but it's primarily about you know there's a, a type of king jeroboam ruling in america and you look at some of these problems i think it's very hard for liz trust to fix them if Boris Johnson, I mean, if Donald Trump came back, he could have it fixed by next week. Mm-hmm. You know, that like restart a, for Britain to to get into fracking, it would require a courage that I'm not sure Liz Truss had, but has. But because we've never fracked, that's a much longer process. For 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 Donald Trump, it would just be you know, America's just got so much resource potential. Just open up a few pipelines and a, and a, and a few um, oil fields and things like that. Suddenly, we're pumping out tons of oil. Uh, oil crisis is solved. Starts shipping liquefied natural gas to Europe. Uh, 
energy, you know, liquefied natural gas is a little more expensive. Maybe that will be a little more complicated. Stand up to Putin. You, know, you can really start to see where he can bring some of these problems. So I think one of the key takeaways may be that we just won't see any kind that it is all tied up to Donald Trump. The Bible prophecy focuses on America and Jeroboam for a reason and that we just won't see any kind of turnaround until he's back. Uh, then mm-hmm. you know, that's the prop. That's the, the kind of the superpower uh, of, of Israel right now. And uh, that's what we've got to watch. I think it puts the focus on the America under a attack booklet. Mm. that we've just come out with that Mr. Flurry's just finished and we've got back from the printers because really what happens there is going to affect us in Britain. It's going to affect Europe. And there is just an incredible, incredibly specific and bold prophecy that we are watching to be fulfilled that is just going to be once, you know, it's just going to be another powerful demonstration of, of fulfilled Bible prophecy. Very good. Uh, we appreciate that uh, analysis. We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss. He's working on an article about this. You can watch for that on thetrumpet.com. We really appreciate your insights, Mr. Palmer. Great to be here. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Europe is in a terrible energy crisis, and it is trying to boycott Russian energy. This is leading it to look for other sources of energy. We'll hear about one of these alternative sources in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. It's no surprise that Europe is in the midst of an intensifying energy crisis. But one of the avenues that the Europeans are using to procure liquid natural gas amidst this crisis is remarkable. And it should arrest the world's attention because it's leading to a stunning and history-altering outcome. This liquefied natural gas, or LNG, appears to be coming from China. That's a notable development in and of itself because China has traditionally been an importer and not an exporter of LNG. In fact, China is the world's largest importer, bringing in more of it than any other nation on Earth. But this year, China has undergone widespread COVID shutdowns, even as most of the rest of the world has ended all such policies. The Chinese economy is also in the midst of a deepening housing crash and broader economic downturn. So in light of all this, China's appetite for energy has been considerably reduced. And onlookers couldn't be faulted for thinking that since the demand has shrunk, that China would also shrink its purchases of natural gas. But instead, China is doing just the opposite. It's actually ramping up its purchases of LNG from one of its main suppliers, Russia. The South China Morning Post recently reported that in the first half of 2022, China bought 2.8 million tons of Russia's LNG. That's 29% more than it bought for the same time last year. This increase has solidified China's spot as the world's largest buyer of LNG, and it has propelled Russia past the United States and Indonesia to the position of China's fourth largest supplier. Meanwhile, Russia's sales of pipeline gas to China have increased even more dramatically. Those have grown by almost 65% in the first six months of the year as compared to last year's volumes. 
These expanded volumes bring China's gas imports to far more than the nation uses domestically, particularly during this time of shrunken energy appetites. So what's China doing with the vast quantities of Russian LNG that it doesn't need? Well, the answer is that it is quietly selling much of this LNG to Europe. Data from commodity analytics firm Kepler shows that in the first half of the year, Europe imported 60% more liquefied natural gas than last year's volumes for the same time frame. This increase happened because Europe has made efforts to boycott Russian energy in order to punish Russia for its full-scale war on Ukraine. The boycott efforts have brought Europe's purchases of Russian pipeline gas close to zero, but they've caused severe gas shortages for European nations, and these shortages are particularly concerning as winter approaches. So Europe is now working to offset the shortages of pipeline gas from Russia with major increases of LNG imports. The trouble is that this means Europe is right back to buying Russian gas, only now it's using China as an expensive middleman rather than buying directly from Russia. The earliest evidence of this came from China's Jovo Group. They're a major LNG broker, and they revealed that they had sold an LNG cargo believed to be worth as much as $100 million to a European buyer. China's local media, meanwhile, reported that its largest oil refiner, Sinopec Group, has in recent months resold some 3.8 million tons of LNG on international markets. The Financial Times extrapolates this out to say that the total volume of LNG that China has resold is likely in excess of 4.8 million tons. This totals around 7% of Europe's LNG imports for the first half of the year. This trade pattern not only means that China is helping Russia to skirt U.S. sanctions, which enriches both nations in the process, it also means that Europe is still buying Russian gas. But since Europe is doing so indirectly through China, it can maintain a facade of continuing its boycott on Russian energy. And Europe is apparently willing to pay two to three times more than it would in order to keep its virtue signals blazing. Zero Hedge called this, quote, a circuitous bypass of Russian sanctions by a hypocritical Europe. Zero Hedge added that this whole dynamic with Europe, Russia, and China, quote, makes a mockery of U.S. geopolitical ambitions to defend a liberal international order with its own energy exports. End quote. To many observers, it may seem surprising to see Europe abetting Russia and China in their circumvention of U.S. sanctions and in their mockery of America, but this is actually the sort of development we should expect to see happening more often if we understand Bible prophecy. Around 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah foretold of an immensely powerful multinational trade alliance that would develop in our time. And he listed who the main member nations of this block would be. In Isaiah 23 verse 1, he labels one of them as Chittim. This is a group of people that trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote about in his book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. He writes, Kittim is synonymous with the Chittim of Isaiah's prophecy. After their migration through Central Asia, 
The Kittim people made their appearance in modern-day northeastern China and Mongolia." End quote. So this name Kittim indicates modern China. Isaiah's prophecy goes on to say that Tyre would be another major member in this trade block, and Mr. Fleury explains the meaning of this name writing, The spiritual center of the modern European Holy Roman Empire is called Babylon in your Bible. See Revelation 17.5 and 18.1-3. But here in Isaiah, the Bible refers to Tyre and its allies, Zidon, etc., as the commercial center of this European power. End quote. So Isaiah 23 says China and Europe will be key players in this globe-girdling economic block. In Isaiah 23, and a companion passage in Ezekiel 27, show that Russia and Japan will also join this trade alliance. Together, these countries, along with some others, will come to dominate world trade for a brief time. And the prophecies show that they will use that dominance eventually to strangle America and some of its allies. Mr. Fleury writes, The Bible contains many prophecies of that European power attacking America. When it happens, there will be no help or sympathy from Asia. In fact, Russia, China, and Japan will form a brief alliance with Europe. All of them are going to besiege America, Britain, and the Jewish nation. A little further down, Mr. Fleury continues, This is why Isaiah's prophecy of an end-time mart of nations that includes both European and Asian powers is so intriguing, and why the trend of collusion between these two great economic blocks is worth watching. In light of these prophecies, we should not be surprised to see Europe continuing to surreptitiously buy Russian energy through back channels. We should actually expect these sorts of developments and for ties between Europe and Russia and China to grow stronger, and we should expect these nations to increasingly stand against America. The scriptures make clear that this trend will culminate in a time of unprecedented calamity and darkness. But the story will not end there. The Bible also shows that the darkness will be short-lived and will be overcome by light. And then a fundamentally new era of history will begin, far more luminous than any that humankind has ever experienced. Mr. Fleury writes, That trading partnership won't last long. Soon they will clash, just before Jesus Christ returns and destroys both of them. End quote. So it's clear that the creator of humanity will come back to earth and bring a conclusive end to man's rebellion, war, and self-destruction. He will usher in an age of peace and light for the peoples of Russia, Ukraine, China, Europe, America, and all the world. Thank God, Mr. Fleury writes, there is great news beyond the bad news. To understand more about the Mart of Nations trade block and the unprecedented war and unprecedented peace that are on the horizon, order your free copy of Mr. Fleury's book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. Thank you very much for that, Jeremiah. It's stunning how much Europe is paying for this energy from China. I find it interesting considering how dire the situation is right now in Europe that it's 
it's so intent on not doing business with Russia, yet it's willing to work with China. Europe likes to consider itself the champion of liberal virtues, and it's punishing Russia for this war in Ukraine, but it seems unconcerned about the ethical and the human rights violations that China is involved in. That's a very good point. Yeah, there's a there's a massive double standard there. And, and you're right, the uh, Europeans, especially the Germans, you know, since the legacy of the Holocaust, really like to portray themselves as champions of human rights and all that. Um, but yet they have not really followed the U.S.'s lead in trying to move away from business dealings with China and particularly the Xinjiang uh, region in China. That's where it's it's well known that there are these internment camps that are somewhat analogous to what, what was happening during World, World War II at the Holocaust with the, uh, the Uyghur Muslims there, all kinds of forced labor. And so American lawmakers have uh, banned any kind of business dealings with that region in particular and are trying to move away from China in general. But with Europe, though, you, you see apparently no real concern for that. And it is, it is a double standard. Why do they care so much about Russia's atrocities and human rights abuses in Ukraine, but yet they're willing to turn quite a blind eye to a pretty similar situation in China? Russia's relationship with Europe is very complicated, um, and there are in, uh, there there is evidence of uh, European elites wanting to maintain that relationship with Russia in spite of an enormous amount of pressure to turn their back on them because of what's happened in Ukraine. But in a way, the relationship between Russia and China is so strong. And Russia uh, or Europe is uh, the fact that it's doing business with China. Uh, it shows this relationship between what we understand to be the king of the north, uh, uh, this European power and these kings of the east, that uh, it does point to this whole prophecy of this mart of nations and these nations working together as ugly as it may be, as, as fraught as it might be with ethical problems and so on. They are aligned with one another in some basic ways. When you step back and you look at the bigger picture and their desire to uh, to to work outside of an American-dominated global order. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think that's the real crux of this story is just that it does show that uh, that trade alliance that Isaiah wrote about 2,700 years ago between Europe and China and Russia and some other nations, you really can see that coming together. You can you can see the foundations for it beginning to be built. And, uh, and we know that that is at its heart an anti-American trade bloc. Mm-hmm. Well, we do appreciate you bringing that to us. We've been talking with trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about China buying up Russian energy and then reselling it to Europe. He's written an article about this. Beijing is quietly reselling Russian natural gas to Europe. You can find that on thetrumpet.com. Thank you so much, Jeremiah. Thanks for having me. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. This past weekend, the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology opened its doors in Jerusalem to the public, capping off a very busy summer. To tell us about this, we have via Skype from Jerusalem, our Trumpet Hour Jerusalem correspondent, Brent Noctegal. Hello, Brent. Hello, how are you? Doing great. It is great to hear from you after uh, a bit of a 
uh, a while that it's been Josh Taylor's been covering admirably for you on our Friday shows, but we have missed hearing from you. So I wanted to talk first about just the, you had two big projects going this past summer. You had a, a dig going and you had the opening of the Archaeology Institute to, to worry about simultaneously. Start by giving us a brief overview of the dig that you undertook. So this was the first time that we've been back excavating since uh, 2018, since the death of the late Dr. Elot Mazar, uh, whom we worked with for a long, long time in Jerusalem. And we were searching for a way to continue this relationship with Hebrew University and excavations in this very important location, which is just south of the Temple Mount Wall. And um, Professor Uzi Liebner uh, is the head of the Archaeology Institute at Hebrew University. And uh, he, uh, we took him out to the site maybe four or five months ago uh, to look at some of some amazing uh, partial discoveries from the period that he's an expert in, the Herodian period, Hellenistic and Herodian periods. Uh, so about 2,000 years ago, the time of Jesus Christ. Uh, and when he was there and he saw what remained or what had partially been exposed already from 2,000 years ago, he was quite blown away. And we saw that the these large steps that were beautifully crafted uh, from again 2000 years ago continued into an area that was available for excavation there was another building from the byzantine period about 500 years after that was built on top of it and so we uh, tried to convince him as much as possible that this was a great idea for him uh, and hebrew university to continue excavating in this spot to uncover more of this beautiful Herodian period building. And so this excavation took about four weeks. It's kind of like an initial excavation and, and hopefully in the future we'll do another one here uh, in that same location to uncover more of these, uh, more of this building from 2000 years ago. Um, but there was 10 students from, well, 10 of us from Herbert W. Armstrong College, which the, the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology uh, gets all its student resources from, uh, that were helping out on this excavation, uh, making most of the workforce on this excavation. So some dramatic discoveries after uh, four weeks of excavating, finding the destruction of Jerusalem from 70 AD, uh, and inside that, that destruction, just amazing um, uh, ashless stones, built stones, stones from walls that had come crumbling down in the ash, uh, as well as a lot of these important coins that were minted in Jerusalem in the very last year of this revolt before uh, Jerusalem fell to the Romans. So that was the excavation, uh, and uh, Professor Levener was very excited about the excavation. Um, this was, it was dug right over this period of, of uh, Tisha B'Av, which is the day commemorating the fall of both the, both the first and the second temple. And so to be digging in the destruction of Jerusalem um, right as that memorial um, was uh, kept here in Jerusalem was, was particularly moving for him. Yeah, we have a video posted on the armstronginstitute.org website where you interviewed him right there on site and uh, talked about, he was pretty forthcoming about several of the discoveries that you made while you were on that uh, excavation. He seemed really ecstatic about how much, uh, how productive that uh, excavation was. And uh, of course, there's a lot of work to be done just to process everything and, and uh, to publish it properly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's exciting that, uh, the, the relationship with, uh, Professor Liebner got up to such a strong start. 
Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, he was he was kind of hesitant at the beginning just because he's the head of the institute, which comes with a lot of um, uh, bureaucratic work that needs to be done with scheduling of the classes and the course load for students and then, you know, uh, trying to get uh, donations from outside sources for the institute to fund further excavations, meeting people, uh, and then he teaches. He's got a full course load to teach on top mm. of that. And so uh, he was able to pull himself away from that uh, and come to work and then go back to the university uh, straight after the dig. So he was a busy man for that month. Yeah. Well, that's really, I'm sure, uh, working in the field is, is uh, the most exciting part of all of those responsibilities that he has. So now tell us about the, the new home of the uh, Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. You, you had a lot of preparation that had to take place to be ready for this grand opening this past Sunday. Yeah, this is a this is a process that's gone back um, six or seven years now. I think uh, we've been searching for a building for yeah. an institute of archaeology, of biblical archaeology. Uh, Mr. Gerald Flurry, the editor in chief of the Trumpet, uh, he wanted and has desired to do this for some time, and so it really has been a process of doing the work, I guess, or building up the the work of the institute from different locations around the world, from our headquarters campus in, in Oklahoma, and then also a couple of us here in Jerusalem, uh, producing most of the content for the website, and then waiting until the right building came along. And, and this uh, building, I think we first saw back in February, um, and Mr. Flurry really liked it back then, uh, it, it, it's going to service all the needs, I think, for the immediate term and hopefully thereafter of the, the Institute. And so from the time period that we got the keys to the time period that our opening was, uh, I think it was a period of, of uh, about a month and a half. So <laughs> not long, yeah. not long to do some heavy renovations. Uh, which uh, Mr. Brad McDonald, who's the, I, I forget his exact title of the institute, he's basically oversees uh, the running of the institute for Mr. Flurry. Um, he was here and uh, he wasn't doing too much archaeological work while the rest of us were. He was working with contractors and and uh, Israeli contractors and suppliers and and uh, to try and get this building fitted out. Of course, the students that were working on the dig, they also put about three hours of work on the on the building each night uh, too after coming home from the excavation. So it was all hands on deck and uh, yeah, building towards this opening on September 4th. Fantastic. So uh, I definitely want to hear about the uh, the opening itself, but you had Mr. Flurry there with you. I guess he showed up last Friday. Maybe you could just tell us about uh, his visit leading up to the uh, the opening ceremony. So it was really uh, important for him to be here for the opening and to address uh, the visitors that we had. Uh, he arrived here with with um, uh, some of his helpers uh, on on Friday, some of his assistants, and his wife was here in town also. Um, he took a, a a visit to the excavation site early Sunday morning with Professor Levener, and he was um, shown shown around the site, the recent discoveries, and also some potential options for the future to see whether that was going to be something possible that possibly that we'd be involved in. Um, and then he was really preparing his message that he was going to give uh, to Israeli public uh, at the Institute opening as well. And so he also met with, uh, after the opening, he met with uh, Professor Yosef Garfinkel of um, King David fame, a couple of sites he's excavated from the time period of King David. And um, so uh, it's, it was a very productive uh, couple of days for him. 
So tell us about uh, a little more about the building and then how everything went uh, with the opening that you had on Sunday evening. So the building itself, it has a few offices in it. It's, uh, it also has a, a lab in it where work can be done. Uh, archaeological processing of finds can be done. And it also has the, the libraries that uh, we purchased um, uh, from uh, Professor Benjamin Mazar and Elot Mazar. This is their personal research library uh, that we, we purchased. And this is filling up half this building. So there's, I don't know, four or 5,000 books uh, that are all related to archaeology, biblical history, geography as well. And so there was a lot of work putting those on shelves as well, making sure that the right ones got on the shelves. There's actually plenty more that we haven't quite fit on the shelves just yet. Um, and so there's more work to do there as well. And so this all pretty much culminated, I think, on, on Friday morning uh, before the <laughs> before the opening on Sunday. Uh, we were all kind of breathing a little bit easier that we're ready. We're almost ready for the opening. And so on Sunday itself, there was about, I think about 80 people in attendance after everything, um, about 20 of our people associated with the Institute, and then about 25 Let the Stone Speak subscribers. This is the uh, this is the magazine of biblical archaeology that we put out six times per year. Their Israeli subscribers were invited to that, and about 25 of them came, some as far as Haifa, uh, about two hours away in the north, the Galilee region. Uh, all along the coast, Tel Aviv, Halon to the south, and even all the way down to Eilat, there was somebody that came that's on the Red Sea. So plenty of people came from far and wide uh, to this. We also had uh, some of our associates from Hebrew University, archaeologists, uh, longtime friends from Hebrew University. Some journalists came as well, uh, notably Melanie Phillips, who we've had a, a close relationship with, with the trumpet for a number of years. She came with her husband. Uh, and then there was also some officials from the Israeli Antiquities Authority. And so you had a, a good mix of people that were really interested in the archaeology and it's their profession. And then a, a mix of people that are interested in the Bible and archaeology based on the Let the Stone Street Speak magazine. And then also the special guests were the members of the Mazar family themselves with Avital Mazar, Dr. Elot Mazar's sister uh, one of and her husband. One of the sons of Elot Mazar came, Ophir, the youngest son. And then also um, Professor Amahai Mazar, who's the professor emeritus for Hebrew University. Uh, that is Dr. Benjamin, Professor Benjamin Mazar's nephew. He was also in mm. attendance. So uh, tell us about uh, maybe a, a, a bit of what Mr. Fleury spoke about and your sense of the reception uh, from the people who attended, what they felt feel about the, uh, the opening of this institute. The, the reception of what Mr. Fleury spoke about, I think, was very positive. The, the event was kind of broken up into three. You had Mr. McDonald, uh, Brad McDonald, who kind of gave an introduction to uh, the Institute and, and thanked a lot of people that was, were in attendance who have helped us over the years. Then you had Professor Leavner, who actually gave a 20-minute summary of the discoveries of this past Ophel season. And um, he brought some discovery, the discoveries themselves. And so they were on display for people to see as well. And then following that, Mr. Flurry gave the keynote address for about half an hour or so. And he focused a lot on what Mr. Armstrong did uh, and Mr. Armstrong's work in Jerusalem. Mr. Armstrong started this partnership back in December of 1968. And through this period, he, he met with a lot of Israeli leaders 
who were very interested in archaeology back then, uh, it seemed, including all the prime ministers and presidents until his death in 1986. And so quite a few of those were very receptive to what Mr. Armstrong talked about. And Mr. Flurry, he he kind of went past the archaeology. He talked about it briefly and how this was the stepping stone to just a greater friendship and a greater openness between the leaders, Mr. Armstrong and the prime ministers and the presidents, and talking about how um, Mr. Armstrong would approach them, talking about biblical history, talking about the Bible, talking about world peace even, and how that's a desirous uh, thing that that we should be going after. Uh, and he spoke about how the, the Israeli leaders at that time were very receptive and that there was a certain harmony between Mr. Armstrong and the Israeli leaders. And and so I think it was well received. I heard from a few people that listened to it that they were grateful for it as well. I don't know if it was exactly what, what they anticipated. Mm. Um, however, I think uh, coming to the Institute and hearing about the founder and oh, the the namesake of the institute, and and how he related to Israel's leaders, and really archaeology being the gateway to that, uh, was was important for for all of us to hear. That is uh, very exciting to hear. I'm I'm uh, I'm so glad that uh, you were able to to share all of that with us. Just looking ahead now, you mentioned that uh, Mr. Flurry was talking with Professor Liebner about possible. Next steps, uh, further excavations. We've, we have a couple that, uh, or at least one big one that we've had kind of in our sights for a while. What's next for the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology? Well, I think we, we do want to um, make sure that we are covering the most important discoveries in history as revealed uh, that corroborates the Bible and the biblical account. And so that goes past just our excavations, but making sure this magazine that we have, which is kind of, I would say, for, for those that are listening, somewhat similar to Bar, uh, I suppose, or how Bar used to be. Um, the Biblical Archaeology Biblical Review. Archaeology Review, yes. Uh, a lot of our audience basically were uh, coming and saying that we've replaced Bar for them. Wow. And, and so we really want to make sure that we are highlighting the biblical history and archaeology and how it goes together so well. So there's that publishing part of it. We, of course, want to continue supporting the continued publishing as well of, of Elot Mazar's work. Uh, this is this ongoing at, at Hebrew University. We go there once or twice a time, two times a week to help with the actual scientific work behind the publishing the final reports. Uh, and then we also have these excavations that we'd like to continue. And on that front, there's two areas that we're interested in right here in ancient Jerusalem, continuing on from areas of Dr. Elot Mazar. Uh, and so hopefully we'll be doing more of that in the oncoming year. Um, that's what it seems like right now. Don't want to preempt anything just in case uh, it doesn't pan out just the way that we planned. It's very hard logistically to organize excavations yes. uh, in Jerusalem, as Professor Levener found out. Uh, and so um, that is the plan. The plan is to, to continue with that. We're also trying to do more interviews with, with archaeologists uh, as well to try and get uh, our name of the Institute out there, not just for our own discoveries, but also giving voice to other significant discoveries. So I've just got an interview this Thursday uh, with with Dr. Yiftach Shalev of an excavation in the city of David. Just yesterday, they reported a discovery of, of amazing ivory uh, inlays that would have been in furniture um, from the time period of, of right around the time of Jerusalem's destruction, of how the Judean elites had this very opulent uh, furniture 
similar to what the Ahab had. I think he he had a house of ivory, and so just a really stunning biblical uh, find with biblical significance. So more interviews like that as well. Well, that's outstanding. I, you really are providing a, a service in the light of the uh, the fall of Biblical Archaeology Review. The fact that uh, the, these finds, they need more publicity. They need uh, champions that are trying to spread this message as far and wide as, as possible. And there certainly is... Uh, there, there is archaeology going on that uh, is very biblically significant. I think the interviews that you've done that have been published so far on the uh, Institute's website and Watch Jerusalem before that uh, really have been outstanding and really, uh, really fascinating. We are so thankful to, uh, to catch up with you here. We appreciate your, your time. We've been talking with our Jerusalem correspondent, Brent Noctegall, about the opening this past weekend of the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. Go check out the official website, armstronginstitute.org. You can see the video of Mr. Noctegall's interview with Professor Uzi Liebner there on that site. You can also take a look at Let the Stone Speak, the magazine of uh, the Institute. Go check it out. Thanks so much, Brent. Thanks for your time. It's time for today's Last Word. Is your diet supplying your body the nutrition you need your physical body is a marvelous machine and it needs a certain kind of fuel just as surely as your car does god doesn't want to see you just scraping by he wants you to function at your peak third john verse 2 says beloved i wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health well here are a couple of simple rules that will help ensure you're giving your body the right fuel Probably the most important rule that will do wonders for your health is, as much as possible, avoid processed foods. Refined sugar, white flour, refined vegetable oils, canned foods, skim and low-fat milk, hydrogenated fats, additives, and artificial sweeteners. Most of these are loaded with chemicals, preservatives, taste enhancers, and colorings that God did not create for us to consume. Instead, as much as possible, eat whole foods, foods God created you to eat the way he created it. Have an apple. God made apples. You're much better off eating an apple rather than applesauce that includes high fructose corn syrup, sugar, natural flavor, ascorbic acid, those types of ingredients. God's whole foods give your body nutrients. The world's counterfeits leach nutrients from your body so eat whole wheat rather than refined flour have whole grain pasta or brown rice rather than white whole fruits and vegetables even with the skins where uh, that's appropriate now you might need to re-educate your taste buds to learn to enjoy food as god made it You know, eating right would be a whole lot easier if green vegetables tasted like bacon. You have to train yourself to enjoy whole foods the way God made them. Train yourself to enjoy fruit and nuts for dessert, for example, and healthier desserts. 
using whole flowers and sweeteners. The more you eat those and limit junk food, the more you'll enjoy them. Did you know that a few hundred years ago, the average person in Europe would eat three to four pounds of sugar a year? Well, today, most people eat well over a hundred pounds of sugar in a year. Realize that in one 12 ounce can of soda, there is a cup of refined sugar. And it's no wonder, given the fact that these types of beverages, these types of foods are being consumed so much today that we have so many sugar diseases, diabetes, hypoglycemia, headaches, thyroid malfunction, adrenal malfunction, acne, bone loss, dental decay, hyperactivity. Instead, use natural sweeteners in moderation. Things like natural maple syrup, maple sugar, raw honey. Another major point is to eat proper proportions. In our world today, there is so much food and overeating is epidemic. The Center of Disease Control says that the percentage of adults aged 20 and up who are overweight or obese is 69.2%. Even childhood obesity is rising. About 17% of young people aged 2 to 19 years are obese in America. That's 12.5 million American children. Now, at the same time that you have this obesity epidemic, you have skyrocketing heart disease, type 2 diabetes, other blood sugar problems caused by hyperinsulinemia. That's too much insulin in the bloodstream because of processed foods, too much refined sugar, too many carbs. God really wants us to exercise self-control in all things, including what we put in our mouths. There are a lot of places in the Bible that condemn gluttony and overeating. Proverbs 25 and verse 27 says, don't eat too much honey. You need to learn what appropriate portions of food are. The biggest thing for most of us is we need to understand and control our intake of carbohydrates. It's very easy to overload on carbs. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote in his autobiography, Sickness is not natural. Sickness comes only from broken physical laws within our body. Most of the time it comes from excess of carbohydrates. Now, your body needs carbs. Carbs turn into sugar, and all the tissues and cells in our body use that for energy. We need carbs for our central nervous system, our kidneys, our brain, our muscles, including our heart, for these to function properly. But the amount that we consume and the quality of the carbohydrates makes a huge difference. There are two basic types of carbs, simple and complex. Simple carbohydrates are refined sugars that have little nutritional value. The white bread, the white rice, white pasta, white potatoes, packaged cereals, sugar, candy, chocolate, soda. These things cause spikes in your blood sugar. Complex carbohydrates have a more complex chemical structure. They take longer to digest. They don't raise your blood sugar levels as quickly. These are the fruits and vegetables, sweet potatoes, yams, beans, lentils. There are favorable and unfavorable carbs, good carbs, bad carbs. That's the difference between the simple and the complex. And what's amazing is the amount of carbohydrate in simple carbs versus complex carbohydrates is starkly different. One bagel 
typically has about 36 grams of carbohydrate. To get the same amount of carb, you'd have to eat four oranges or eight cups of broccoli or 24 cups of romaine lettuce. So what that means is you really have to limit how much you eat of the simple carbs. I grew up eating a heaping bowl of cereal each morning, which is like setting off a simple carb atom bomb in your body. Look at the label of that package that you're about to eat. Look at the serving size that is recommended. And notice on most packaged cereals, that serving size is like a quarter cup, a third of a cup. If you're going to have cereal, even half a cup, which is very little, is plenty. But then balance that with some protein like yogurt, eggs, some good fat like almonds. Generally with simple carbs, with rice, cereal, bread, pasta, and so on, you should limit yourself to a palm-sized portion. Now on the flip side, you really don't have to worry about how much complex carbs you eat. A lot of nutritionists recommend the 80-20 rule. Being disciplined 80% of the time gives you a bit of flexibility to relax that remaining 20% of the time. That helps you to stick with uh, a strict diet and it provides some flexibility for when life happens and you can let yourself relax a little bit maybe one day out of the week. Now relaxing a bit doesn't mean eating a gallon of ice cream. It means a moderate indulgence. Proper eating and nutrition is a way of life. It's not just about losing weight. It's about being healthy, living the way God intends so that you can be a better tool for God. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Philip Henry Stanhope. Great men have almost always shown themselves as ready to obey as they afterwards proved able to command. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.